welcome to Inspired Island, where every episode we sit down with someone living an inspired life here on Vashon Island in Puget Sound. From world-class artists and musicians to chefs and business owners, our little rural island has it all. I'm your host, Grace McRae, a new full-time Vashon Island resident, and thank you for joining me on this journey to discover why Vashon is such an inspired island. Hello, everyone. Now, today's guest is somebody who is very well known in our community. We are lucky enough to have Amy Carey in the studio. Welcome to Inspired Island, Amy. Hi, and thanks for having me. And Amy, for those who don't know, is the executive director of Sound Action, a watchdog group working to protect vital nearshore habitat and species in the Puget Sound area. Their work it covers many critical parts of the ecosystem, anything from salmon, forage fish, nearshore habitats, orcas, you name it. And many locals know about and subscribe to the Sound Actions Pod Blast, which is an alert system providing text notifications when whales are in the area. And Amy is behind that. And Amy is also known for her local community work here, including animal rescue. So... Amy, I know you're very well known on the island, but I'd love to know a little bit more about your personal history. Like, where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? (laughs) Um, I grew up in Iowa, in the cornfields of Iowa. So about as far away from something like an island in, you know, Puget Sound. And I I, I think perhaps to no one's surprise as a kid, I was, uh, I grew up in the country. So I was really fortunate to live in a place where my day would be to, you know, leave in the morning and go spend the, you know, day with my friends in the woods and creeks and all of that stuff and come home for, you know, lunch and dinner. But even then, uh, no surprise, it was full of squirrels and snakes and <laughs> cats and dogs and fish and minnows and you name it. I think I just sort of came out that way. But yeah, mm-hmm. so animals and nature and wildlife were, you know, even as a kid, a part of part of my being. Okay. And do you have siblings? I do. I was the youngest, which, you know, my brothers and sisters would say that that meant I got a lot away, got away with a lot (laughs) and had to do less chores and things like that. Certainly it was also a part of my family upbringing, you know, Wild Kingdom was like church on Sundays, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and um, I remember that stuff, particularly living in Iowa where I didn't know what the ocean was or, you know, I didn't, I didn't see the ocean until I was 18. Oh, wow. But it was always that thing that it was sort of this magical mystery thing and something fascinating. And I remember I, I tell this story to folks sometimes. My parents had gone, and I was just a kid. My parents had gone somewhere to like the, in, somewhere in the South that had ocean. And they came back, they brought one of those horrible little dried up starfish souvenirs. Uh, yeah. And they gave that to me. And For some reason, as you do when you were kids, I put it in my mouth and I remember tasting the salt Mm. and, and then weird little me, um, became like, that was this strange little touchstone that I would have. Like, I loved that starfish and I would sort of taste it sometimes. So that (laughs) was kind of my first introduction to like the sea was a kid in Iowa with a dried up starfish. There you go. Yeah. So you said you didn't see the ocean until you were 18. When you grew up, did you have an idea of what sort of career you were looking for? I mean, you know, that depends on the sort of age, right? I mean, when I was a tiny kid, I 
I, I still probably believe Dr. Doolittle was a real thing and mm. I could maybe go to work there someday. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then into my teen years, I was also really into music. And so I, I was going to play in bands and I did. I mean, uh-huh. that was, you know, what I did. Um, uh, and, you know, had pet care businesses, all of those sort of things. But I don't think I ever would have imagined in a million years that this would be what I was doing with much of my adult life. Though in looking back on it, maybe doesn't surprise me very much. But And so what did that journey look like? Did you go off to college? I didn't. I didn't go to college. Oh, okay. So I, you know, when I, 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 when I saw the ocean for the first time was in Washington State. Oh, okay. uh, was at La Push. Can you imagine? That's your first wow. introduction is like the tide pools at La Push. Yeah. Which was covered now. That's when I realized that starfish were purple. And not dried out brown colors. Um, And so, you know, from there and sort of once I learned really about orcas, that was really, I I say a lot, orcas were kind of my gateway drug into Mm -hmm. environmental work Mm -hmm. um, or my gateway species. But that was really one of the draws in. I mean, just to to diving deeper. uh, I don't mean that, pardon the pun, but like to, to diving deeper into ecosystems and habitat and all of that. And so it just became a part of my sort of everyday and work that I was doing as a volunteer, um, you know, taking all sorts of training courses and learning everything about it. I'm a real research hound. And so um, stepping into that and recognizing then when there's problems that we need to all sort of be working to make some solutions. And I got that start a little more officially, I guess, um, I lost track how many years ago now, but well over 20 years ago when um, the the gravel pit was being proposed out here. Mm. And at that point, there wasn't a lot that was being talked about, like the orcas being down here in the late fall and winter. I remember being in meetings where agencies would say, well, they're not down here. And so you could just start to see all the different issues and problems with um, some of the permitting processes and habitat protections. And so I got involved really early on in the Preserver Islands fight and ultimately moved in to be working directly with Preserver Islands and then started as an executive director with Preserver Islands. So Sound Action was born from what we learned there that um, what we saw here in this community was not an isolated incident. And if we want to be saving Puget Sound and forage fish and salmon and orcas, this was a widespread issue. And so we took what we knew and took it throughout the Salish Sea doing that work. I can attest as somebody also who didn't grow up here, but has become really interested in all the issues surrounding Puget Sound is just, it's incredible to see how interconnected things are once you start digging. And yeah, it's incredible just how this is just kind of a microcosm of the issues that are facing, you know, oceans and waterways all around the world. Yeah. And it's overwhelming because there are so many problems. But I think like anything else, you just kind of have to keep on sort of that one foot in front of the other and doing the work, whether that's, you know, climate change, which also has a direct integration, you know, with with marine habitats and all of that. There are big problems, um, but I think the work that we do and that I focused on is, you know, we do sort of permit by permit review because we were seeing that development projects are allowing habitat loss with each permit that's issued. So we actually are, we have a very targeted approach where you can sort of see change 
instantly, right? If you're if you're doing some work and there's a permit that's being issued that's going to allow habitat loss and and is violating the law, and you and you sort of correct that right there, you've you've sort of stopped a little bit of that bleeding. Um, so that was sort of the focus we took on. And on that note, these days you have become an expert on so many policy issues, legal issues, really heavy, heavy things. Yeah. Is that something you've just kind of learned the skill set over time through your work in this space? Or did you did you go and get any formal training in any of, of this type of work? I didn't really. And um, and I think that, you know, that's it's a little atypical, but sometimes the more you dig into this stuff, you find that there are people in different fields and what have you, that there was just something that either came naturally to them or was part of their sort of nature of things. I mean, I come from a family of journalists. So things like all of us, right? So where's that? That's got to be genetic or something. I don't know. (laughs) But so I come from this background of being very information and sort of fact-based oriented. And again, just, you know, I'm such the geek, like research papers are exciting for me to read. Um, and, And again, policy stuff. So just having that um both i think as just sort of um something that i'm naturally sort of inclined towards but then absolutely like with preserve our islands you know it sort of touched on all of these things it was a legal and regulatory fight at its core so there was a lot of you know how many years was that but lots of um lots of knowledge that came from that you know i share that a lot in this community that not only did did Vashon come together and do a really amazing thing together for that, what we all did there is now informing a bigger picture of of work as well. Because, you know, it it was also one of those uh, cases that really highlighted how bad the problem was with permitting issues. You know, you would have projects that should have never even really been considered much, but that were given a green light at every turn. And that's what we see over and over and over again. And for those um, who don't live on Vashon or maybe new to Vashon, what's sort of the 30-second pitch on what Preserve Our Islands was Was. and accomplished? So a large multinational mining company proposed what would have been the largest gravel mine by volume of its kind in the country on the shores of Maury Island Mm. with an industrial barging operation. Mm. And the in orca habitat, salmon habitat, forage fish habitat, and um, all the permitting agencies were just rubber stamping them. And this community rose up and said, "There's a problem here." And it was 13 years, a 13 year fight that we won, and now that is a marine preserve. Yeah, thank thank goodness. <laughs> this island would look a lot different. Yeah, the whole Puget Sound would look a lot different. Yeah. Yeah. And talking about orca, uh, it's definitely a species that I've fallen in love with, too. Could you talk a little bit about why you like orca and what are the main issues that you're focusing on through sound action and personally when it comes to orcas? Sure. Um, You know, I think from what I found, both for myself personally, and I think even watching people experience orcas, I'm not sure that you can describe exactly what it is. It's just a thing that hits you. And it's deep in most people's core. There's certainly things that I think are 
are um, fascinating with them. When you look at the animals, you know, having entire dialects and family structures and how they interact. I mean, in many ways, they they behave, the southern residents, which are, you know, the fish eaters, in a way that we should all aspire to, right? Mm-hmm. Families are close. They take care of each other. They communicate well, all of that. But, Matriarchs. <laughs> yeah, right? Matriarchs. So so there's that. I mean, so the first time I actually saw an orca was here on the island, and it was J1, ah. who is now passed, but he was one of the males who his dorsal fin was, I think, like, it was at least six feet. I think it was closer to eight feet. Jeez. And it was at Point Robinson. And I had no idea what to expect, right? I'd kind of heard this thing happened there. And and he passed about 10, I mean, 10 feet from me. And I can still feel his breath, right? And not just what it sounded like, but there, like what it felt like. And so that stuff stays with you when you have those interactions. And then if you care about orcas, then you have to care about the smallest grain of sand on the beach, right? Mm. Because if you care about orcas, you have to care about salmon, which means you have to care about forage fish and vegetation. And I'm not kidding when I say the smallest grain of sand, because those are the things that bring life to the beaches and bring the food webs to life. You know, they're also clearly sort of an indicator species of, of things that are very visual for us. It's, it's easy to ignore what you can't see below the waterline. But when you have orca populations in this continued decline um, and people are seeing this, I mean, you know, Tahlequah and her baby, the mother who took her baby on the parade of grief for 17 days was a phenomenal example of, of, how much this, um, how much orcas really are that conduit for people to the near shore. And, you know, when Governor Inslee put the orca task force together, um, I was appointed as part of the prey availability work group, which was their sort of fancier way of saying, what do we need to do to make more salmon or to help more salmon survive? And, you know, that was one of those exercises that it first felt like it was going to be, oh, geez, here's another one of those, you know, how many times do we need to plan something? We know what to do, right? And it was definitely going that way. And then Tahlequah happened and um, you could feel the change. You know, it, it, I don't know that we are, are going to be able to prevent extinction. Um, that time is now, but I feel like at least... People are, through those interactions with the whales, are recognizing um, the issue, in a, I think, in a different way. And again, sort of top down. It's, and then it's not even just that they think it's fun to see the whales. They are, they are having these core experiences that um, I will always say sort of bring them in off the sidelines. And do you find that the Podvlast, the text uh, subscription service, do you find that creates more activists for, for these issues? Absolutely. So we started doing that when we were still Preserve Our Islands. And I and some of it was just natural. I was always the one out there working with the sighting network, a couple other folks on the island as well. And so, you know, you're trying to call people and I'd be driving down the street or in Thriftway going, go, go see whales. And so we started doing that sort of as technology caught up too, that you could do really easy automated text messaging. And I do feel like, I mean, that's a part of the motivation behind it of, of having those experiences 
and truly, you know, it's a land-based sighting network only. So you, you can see, you can see it in people when for the first time or even the second or third or fourth, see the whales, it, it changes. And, and then it does open that thing where you have start having dialogue about all of those different things. So I think it absolutely changes that. And particularly um, when we get kids out there. Mm. Though I honestly, I see the same thing with adults. Um, so out here we've had um, just great experiences with that. And there's some sighting networks in different areas of the sound as well. I think they would, you know, we partner with all of them. I think they would say the same thing. And yeah, there have been, I've learned, or I'm still learning that there's a lot of research organizations and networks of orca nerds, as yeah. people like to call themselves. But a lot of them tend to be a little bit north of us. But do you communicate with any of those groups? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. there's definitely, a, I think, a strong partnership between all of these different organizations and, you know, we all texting each other. I, I sometimes when the whales are, um, you know, and that's like whether it's Orca Network, Whale Scout, um, there's some different um, uh, organizations. But I, I I laugh sometimes because when the whales are coming, either way, I sort of feel sometimes like we're handing a baton off, particularly mm -hmm. on Vashon, right? Because they come down here and when they're sort of heading back north, it'll be like, and back to you you know, um, to give it to the central <laughs> sound off, people. Yeah. yeah. So that we're making sure that we're, you know, we're certainly helping people get there. We're also, you know, there's a, there's science to this, right? Yeah. When are they here? What are they doing? It's not uncommon for there to be new babies this time of year in the late fall and winter. So all of those things are being captured and we're always getting the research teams out to them to do whatever they need to do to be helping them as well. Yeah. So we're working on some legislation right now that's specific to, you know, how will we make some improvements that we need right now to increase salmon populations for orcas. And of course, there's the, you know, very important things like Snake River dams, all of these things that are identified. We know those. When we look at regulatory things, it's what do we do right now here? And in um, Puget Sound, the, the juvenile salmon the, what they'll call the marine survivability, right? That's basically how many salmon that come out of stream systems in all of sort of Puget Sound. And when I say Puget Sound, I'm really interchanging with like the Washington portion of the Salish Sea. So from Canada on down. And the survivability rates are, you know, a fraction of what they were even 40 years ago. And it's not what they're seeing in other areas where, Salmon are, you know, they move from their freshwater into marine and then come back. And so they've really been able to highlight that, well, we're not seeing this issue in salmon populations that just, that, that do not involve Puget Sound, that go straight to marine waters. So they are able to look at that and say that's not an ocean issue that's happening. The marine survivability in Puget Sound is a problem for salmon. That doesn't surprise me or Sound Action and I think a lot of folks, because we're looking at this habitat loss, when juvenile salmon are coming out of streams, um, and this is where they're at their highest life cycle need. And so if they don't have that habitat, they don't have the fish or the food. Um, it impacts that survivability. So that sort of thing is incredibly important for not just, I mean, salmon. It's incredibly important for treaty rights mm. and for people. 
mm-hmm. and for orcas. And so those are some of the things that our work is trying to address. And we know why it's happening. That's the thing. There's no great mystery. I mean, there's always going to be some nuances of when you're talking about water quality things and, and that, but we're, we're losing this fight right now because we're losing habitat faster than we could possibly restore it. Yeah. And we're not losing habitat like mysteriously we're doing it. And so we're the ones doing it and we're the ones who can change it. Yeah. We did talk to Joseph Bogard yeah. and um, he told the story of how quickly the salmon ecosystem can recover if we give space, like through the Elwha river, I think yeah. was the example. Yeah. And yeah, so it's, it's frustrating when we know what we need to do and that it will make a difference. And it's just like the political will just doesn't seem to be there, not fast enough. Yeah. And Joseph and I, I mean, I think a lot of our groups like us, we, we all work in this sort of regulatory and policy realm, recognizing that's in many ways where this battle is. Right. Yeah. And so there are good laws on the books. They're not being applied. Mm. And unless you're doing that, you can have, you know, every dollar in the world put into restoration, it's not going to fix things when we're, we've, we have barely enough. I mean, the habitat loss is profound. Um, it's, it's not a small amount. And yeah. so we don't have any to give away anymore. And yet that's what the permitting agencies are doing and in violation of the law. So, and there's folks like Joseph's organization and Sound Action that, and others, right? We're the ones up there holding, trying to hold that line. As part of, I think, there are multiple different organizations doing their body of the work. And I think um, I always view this all as we are the sum of our parts. Mm. I really do use the term stronger together a lot. And mm-hmm. that's really what it is. We, we take our different pieces and we work together toward common goals. Yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful because I know myself, I'm not paying attention to what regulations are coming out or what permitting processes are underway. And so it's not something that I think the general public has access to oftentimes, but it can be really detrimental to progress if things get through. So I'm glad organizations like Sound Action are paying attention. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that that was one of the things early on we realized too, is that if you were to, you know, I wouldn't have believed until I saw it for myself, how bad it was. I think most people think, well, the permitting agencies, we have these laws, right? Yeah. We all pass laws. Um, and so I think it is a bit of a surprise for people when they find out how big that gap is and how big the problem is. Totally. And I'd love to talk about uh, a new project that Sound Action's doing, which I'm sure has involved a lot of blood, sweat, and tears on your part, which <laughs> is the underwater camera and the hydrophone yeah. over at Point Robinson, which is an iconic space here on Vashon and Maury Islands. Yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about what that is and how it came to be and yeah. what the current status is? Well, current status is live. Yeah. And I'm very excited <laughs> to say that. So it was, you know, it, it's great as we were just talking about these experiences and the connections with orcas. And, you know, when I described that first time I saw J1 and they, the orcas passed tend to go very close to shore at Point Robinson. And it's, honestly a bucket list moment for a lot of people throughout the region because you know people see it on social media and they they've seen the video or news reports and so we had been talking for quite a while about getting a hydrophone in because 
once the there's a hydrophone network, but most of it is north sound. And so there was always that, well, if they come down overnight, how does anybody know? So we had been sort of talking about that. And honestly, this was born out of COVID in many ways, because here we were in a time where all of our worlds were closed, right? We were in our, you know, houses. We were just, you know, at that point too, it wasn't even like just even going to the beach. And so as as everything was closed, there was a little light bulb moment of, hey, this this there's technology for this. You know, we we'd been talking about we would put a camera up like Lime Kiln has an above water camera. And I just remember thinking like, well, I think we can do this. It's a moonshot, but I think we can do this. And so um, we started working with a team called View Into the Blue, which is the uh, folks who there was a, an award-winning documentary, Chasing Coral, that it was the team who had developed these sort of through trial and error on their part, these pretty intricate underwater camera system. And, um, and so I laugh because, you know, Sound Action is a really small group. and We do really big things and, and it doesn't phase us. We're like, yeah, we can do that. <laughs> and so, um, so we got in touch with them and started to put together the plan. Um, these cameras are live 24 seven. Uh, they come with, um, they have a, they're self-cleaning and we have one. Um, it's a, it has pan tilt zoom 360. You move it all around. And the design was to let's see what, you know, can we do this and catch the whales when they come by? It would be the first camera. It is now the first camera of its kind for that in the United States. There is a camera up in Johnstone Strait that does catch the northern residents. Um, but it's a fixed camera. Is that the rubbing beach yeah, camera? Yeah, the rubbing okay, beach. that's cool, yeah. And it's in a shallower water. Yeah. So we we just started doing it, and we reached out to the community. And um, it was funny. We had to get permits, right? Ah, We're a regulatory yeah. agency, and we had to get permits <laughs> to put it in, yeah. um, which you know, was great. We knew how to do that. I have to laugh though, because we, so we watchdog the state permits, the hydraulic code permits, which is a horrible name, but it's a really important law. So we had to get one of those. They're called an HPA. I would have thought that that agency would have been really, really careful with our permit, right? Here's, we're the organization who they know reads everything. (laughs) We had to, I joke, we had to appeal our own permit because they issued it to us in violation. <laughs> like they forget. Oh, that's hysterical. So I had to send it back. Ah. We, had to, we sent our permit back saying, um, do you want to take another look at this? Um, so anyway, we went through that permitting process. We got the camera. We were fortunate enough, again, because of COVID, to have um, James Hyde, who grew up here on the island. He's a diver. He works on expeditions on, on uh, Limblad and National Geographic at their cruises. Um, but he was here because of COVID. And so all of those things sort of came together, both the idea and then having James to be here to help us dive and install. It comes in with a big cord. It goes to the lighthouse. We had to shoot internet from across the waterway. I didn't know that was even possible, but a radio relay signal of internet because there's not internet signal at the lighthouse. So there were all these kind of crazy things with it. And then we got it in as sort of a test run in May. 
And, and it was remarkable right away. The idea being this was orcas and for the near shore. And the lens to the near shore has been remarkable. Schools of fish. You're seeing, you know, the changes of both season and even day and different things that have happened um, has been really phenomenal. And then, of course, like, you know, all good things that you're super excited about during this very difficult past couple of years, we had an issue. The arm has a self-cleaning arm that cleans the globe off. And I call it the barnacle attack because in the spring, the larval barnacles just took over. Uh. And so we had to pull the camera, do some repairs, and we just got it back in Okay. Um, uh, just a couple weeks ago. So we're now back fully live. Um, and it's broadcast 24-7. We put it on a YouTube channel, a Sound Action YouTube channel. Um, and we did that so that it, it, if it can just stay on for people. I know folks, who, like if you have a Roku TV, you can put it on your channel, <laughs> right? It's like sound action TV. So anyway, it's really exciting. We haven't, we're just this next week starting to make the big public announcement of it. Okay. So you're hearing it here Ooh. first. But it is, it's really, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, and really, again, is another example of we wouldn't have been able to do that without our donors and members and all of that stepping up to help with it. Wow, so, that's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to catch the first whale footage. They came about halfway down last week, and I was so nervous. I was like, oh, I don't, are they coming? I'm going to have to catch them. What if it's placed wrong? Um, you can maneuver the camera. It's through a phone app, which is oh. pretty bizarre like you can be wherever and move it around but I was getting all like you know am I gonna catch them if they go by am I gonna move it fast enough so we'll see what that looks like but yeah that's really exciting hopefully yeah and what a I'm sure it'll be great not only for connecting people to orcas but also I'm guessing researchers will want it yeah yeah Yeah. and and I think what our our goal of this too I mean certainly with the orcas it'll give us you know depending on how we catch them we're going to have their vocalizations we know um and for the for the near shore that's the thing that I think is going to completely evolve like as we go through um forage fish spawning habitat times um, where you can have teams really watching. You can do fish counts. Um, You're seeing the change in vegetation. We're seeing some really pronounced effects from the passage of the container ships that are a distance away. So there's a lot of things there that I don't even, I don't even know we've even put the list of like, here is all the things this is going to show us and help us. And And things will probably just pop up now. You know, naturally and unexpectedly. And, well, yeah. right away, we were seeing herring when, if you would have, that, right, like technically, it's outside of what somebody thought their spawning season was. Interesting. And, you know, so we're right away messaging out to the forage fish teams, um, research teams and other places within agencies and some work groups that we're a part of saying, hey, there's there's herring here right now. Well, I'm really excited to see how how the next few months look and fingers crossed for some whale visits. That would be absolutely fabulous. And so clearly for anybody who's listening, (laughs) you clearly get a taste that Amy has become a real expert on Vashon and are the habitat surrounding Vashon and Maury Islands. 
When did you actually make the official move to live here on Vashon? I moved here in 95, I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, I had been in Chicago, moved to Seattle, working in the rock clubs and bands and things like that, and moved here then in, I think it was 95. Okay. Yeah. And what was that transition like? Did you take to it? Was it hard to live in an island community? No, it was great. And I don't really remember making like this big decision of here's the goal and we're going to move to Vashon. It just was. It mm. was one of those things like I'd come to vi to visit here and it, it felt like Mecca, right? Sort of how Seattle did to me too. I mean, Seattle was for years one of those places like that's where I, that's where home is. And when I first moved here, I was on the north end on the waterfront. And so it was about as easy as, you know, right. It was, it was, I would walk on the boat and I was working downtown and stuff like that. So I was never one of those folks that felt like any bumpiness with it or seclusion with it. It just felt like I said, home. And then I started recruiting all my friends. So they're all out here. Like people I grew up with in Iowa, we all live out here now. We were next door neighbors wow. and we we're all out here. So so it really is, um, I can't imagine being anywhere else. Wow. And did it take you long to become kind of a go-to person on Vashon? Because these days, there's anything wildlife related, you know, there's a seal on the beach that's injured or somebody finds an owl and doesn't know what to do with it. You're kind of the person that generally the community turns to, to at least figure out what to, what's the next step here. Yeah. Did that did that transition happen pretty naturally? It did. And, um, you know, I try to look back. I can't really remember sort of times before. But a lot of that, too, is that you know, as social, I mean, when I moved here, there, there was barely Internet. Right? Yeah. We forget how quickly some of this technology has changed, too, or social media and things like that. So I think things just sort of organically happen yeah. like this in the community. And... Um, and I think like anything else, I might be sort of a face of some of that. Yeah. Nothing ever is one person, right? right. And so, uh, you know, and in fact, I often joke that I'm the middleman. I mean, I'll go, <laughs> it depends on what the animal is. If it's an owl or if it has um, talons, that's Kelly Keenan is going to be right in there, right? Uh, okay. I'm like, Kelly, come on. <laughs> um, and so there's a network of people of no matter what it is. And this community is really a part of that as well, because They'll see something, they'll, they might reach out um, and help with monitoring. Or if there's an animal that needs to go to one of the wildlife rehab places, this community is phenomenal because you can, I can put a call out to say, I need transport. And usually within an hour or so, I'll have a half a dozen people saying, yeah, I'll do that. Wow. And then they get invested in that too. So, um, yeah. And do you have any tips for those of us residents who want to be supportive of Vashon's ecosystem and wildlife? Like, are there anything, things that are on your mind that like you wish the community knew a little bit more about? Um, not to use rodenticides. Okay. Don't use rat poison ever. Um, even if it says that it's safe for owls or, you know, it, or cats or dogs. It's not. Okay. Um, we've had uh, so many, you know, raptors and things like that, owls, um, 
And the same thing will happen to raccoons that they eat it. And it's just an awful thing to do to an animal. Okay. And there's lots of easier and better ways if you have a pest issue to deal with that. I think that's a big one. Um, please don't pick up baby fawns. <laughs> mm. they, their, their moms leave them alone. I think in the spring, that's always a big part of sort of um, some of the volunteer work out here because there are baby animals and we see them without mothers. And often that's by their design and it's really hard for people to see. So I try to help get that message out every year of, even if you need to call one of us just because you're worried and you need reassured call, you know, because the Vashon Nature Center certainly does a lot of, we, we all sort of route these calls through. And um, so that's, I think, a big one. Mm. Um, and and I think the same thing would be said for seal pups because okay. that's a pretty big issue and a growing issue here. This past season that I know of, there were three pups that had to be pulled by the marine mammal rescue coordinators because of human intervention. Oh, no. Nothing really did happen to the mom. The mothers are very, you know, they're not going to come up. They leave their babies on the beach. Okay. And they will come up to feed them if they're not interrupted by that. And in each one of those cases, we had people like picking the babies up oh, no. and trying to put them back in the water, thinking that they should be there, you know, all of these different things and um, taking, I mean, we had some of them too, where it was reported they were like taking pictures with the babies, all of that. And yeah. so those babies lost their moms. Yeah, They all survived. In fact, SR3, they do the, the marine mammal rehab and then World Vets and Kathy King is one of our response teams. So if there's an issue, they have the licensing to come out and, okay. The, the permits to do that. Um, but they did, well, they released four on Vashon last oh, week. Oh, wow. Um, some from other areas. So S SR3 is a SR3. great Instagram follow. If they you don't are, already, there's some really cute awesome. seal, seal awesome. footage. <laughs> well, and that's where our, so when I mentioned too about our camera, where we had to shoot the shooting internet over, it's from the SR3 um, facility in oh, okay. at the Des Moines Marina. Oh, cool! Nice. So we partnered with them with Sound Action stuff too. So, Beautiful. Yeah. Well, you clearly have a lot on your plate, and I don't know how you do it all. But you've mentioned a few times your love for music. Are you still able to scratch that music itch? Do you? You know, we haven't played in a long time. I mean, I went through that whole, you know, again, rock clubs, playing in bands with one of my best friends, who she lives out here. But um, we haven't played in a long time. But, I mean, it's still, um, it, that's another one of those things that is in you and it doesn't leave you. Yeah. And what do you play? I played guitar and sang. And oh, I don't know okay. either of those things any, you know, with any great mastery. But, um, but no, we had a really great time. I mean, we, we, you know, I was working in rock clubs a friend was working at recording studios, big recording studios. So we were able, like, to have so much fun, you know. It, it was the time, too, right? In Seattle, you know, the whole, it, I mean, it ranged from the sort of heyday of grunge, you know, sort of on from there. And even when we both moved out here to the island some. But, but you know, maybe that's going to be a post-COVID thing. Again. Yeah, totally. Well, I could talk to you all day, <laughs> but I know you have other things to do. But I'd love to go through our fun little lightning round of questions that we do with every sure. guest. Would you be game? Absolutely. Excellent. So the first question is, do you have a personal favorite beverage here on Vashon? 
Ooh, on Vashon. Well, see, that's a hard one because there's a lot of like, I mean, we're sitting across from Camp Colvos, who has mm. really great like microbrews. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would say, well, my, you know, my friend works at Andrew Will. Oh, cool. Um, you know, there's nothing quite like a really nice uh, sort of locally sourced, um, even though the grapes are from Eastern Washington, but um, they're, you know, they're very lovely. Red wines are pretty mm. awesome. Mm. And if you're not at home or work, uh, which I know your work takes you all over, where can people most often find you on the island? Do you have any favorite haunts or spaces here on the island? Well, that would be kind of the beach, which mm. is both work and not. Yeah. But um, I guess I would probably say, you know, the sort of favorite off time would probably find me either alone or with friends like blasting Taylor Swift. <laughs> so... You know, nice. wherever that may be. In <laughs> fact, sometimes even down the road with headsets on, which means that I'm kind of dancing weirdly on the side of the road. <laughs> well, if we see you, we'll know what you're You'll listening to. You'll know what to. it is, yeah. <laughs> and do you have any pet peeves about island living? Ooh. Um, you know, I don't really. I mean, I think this is a really pretty phenomenal community. If there would be anything, it can be sometimes that odd, weird small town rumor mongering thing and you know but I don't I don't you know I think there's sometimes that stuff can happen yeah yeah yeah, totally and do you have a favorite Vashon Island tradition you know I know that um I'm trying to think how far back it's gone or not I think that the solstice lights Ah. Um, they used to do them in Paradise Valley and you'd go drive with your headlights off <laughs> um, when they would put the lanterns along the side of the road there. Um, and they've, re- you know, recently, I think post pre-COVID moved that into then Fisher Pond. I think that's pretty cool. Oh, cool. I haven't yeah. done that. All yeah. right. And lastly, where can people go to find you or learn more about you and your work? Well, our website, soundaction.org, mm-hmm. um, kind of has all of our stuff, and there's links from there. We certainly have social media pages, Facebook pages. I think it's Sound Action Northwest, but you'll find us there. Um, and then the camera is both, the live cam is is both, we have the feed on that in our website directly embedded, um, or on YouTube. Okay. We have our own YouTube channel. And it's there. We also put up some of the videos every day I'll go through and because we capture part, we, we record the, the camera. And so I'll go through and catch like cool things that have happened. And so we'll put some of those clips up as well. Cool. And then um, the link for Pod Blast too um, for the Orca Alerts is um, through our through our website. Just, you know, if you, it should have the Pod Blast link there or um, it's, you know, soundaction.org slash pod blast. Yes, yeah. I think that's right. And I'll add all those links to the show notes on the Voice of Ashon webpage for anybody who wants to go explore. Great. But uh, thank you so much for thank taking you. the time to come in today, Amy. This is awesome. Good. Well, I will hope I get to see you on the beach with rising fins. So. Yes, fingers crossed perpetually. And thank you for listening. Again, this is Inspired Island on Voice of Ashon, KVSH, 101.9 FMLP. Until next time, stay inspired.